The Bible reading this morning is from Genesis chapter 2 and it can be found on page 3 of the Bibles. Genesis chapter 2 verses 15 to 25 on page 3. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them, and whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. This is the word of the Lord. We're going to be doing something a little bit different this morning and so you all need one of these white pieces of paper. So what we're going to be doing this morning and next week is we're going to be talking about what we can learn about what the Bible has to say about women. And so if you're visiting... As I say, this is a bit different from what we normally do. Think more classroom than sermon, okay? If you need a pen, if you need something to write with, then can I encourage you to use a pen? I will try to stick pretty carefully to these notes and follow them through, so it would be really helpful if you keep this white handout open. And you need to turn to page... Before we get into this, let me just say three things. Number one, I can't cover everything this morning and next week. So if I haven't answered your questions, then I'm really sorry. Uh, if I haven't answered them satisfactorily, because I realize that everything that I say, or almost everything I say, is going to be contested to some degree or other. People have different opinions. Uh, so if you're upset by something I say, I'm really sorry, but I will do my best to provide light rather than heat, because I think it's really important that we take seriously that the Bible tells us the truth and leads us into truth. And the third thing I want to say by way of introduction is this is about people. We're talking about not an issue. We're talking about women. And so I want to say right at the start, women, this is about you. It's not about an issue. I'll come to this later, but you are not 
an issue. You're people and you're special. And I hope that by the end of today and next week, I hope if you're a woman, you are saying, thank you, Lord, that you made me a woman. <laughs> I am so pleased you didn't make me a man. And men, I hope you're saying, I am so pleased, Father, that you made a woman. Okay? Let's pray. Father, please help us this morning because we need your spirit, the spirit who inspired your word to bring truth to us and to help us to open our hearts to your truth. So, Father, please help us to engage with what you're saying through your word by your spirit. And we ask this in Jesus' name. I want to do five things today. I want to look at five subjects. So I'm going to motor as quickly as I can. Number one, I want to ask the question, what does it mean to be a woman? Who are you? Your identity. Something about that. Secondly, something about the purpose of woman. The third thing I want to say is something about the relationship between men and women. Fourth thing, I want to address the reality of the world that we're in which is that things are not right between men and women, as well as all the other things. And the fifth thing is, what's the impact of the gospel? How does the gospel speak into what it means to be a woman and about relationships between men and women? So let's start. We're going to start with Genesis 1. Genesis 1 is the foundation for everything. Genesis 1 is the beginning of the beginning. But also in Genesis 1, we get an insight, a glimpse into what the future will look like. Sometimes I think those of us who are familiar with the Bible, we come to the book of Genesis and we read Genesis 1 and then we read the story in Genesis 2 about the creation of the garden and uh, human beings in the garden. And we hear that phrase that's repeated in Genesis 1, it was good, it was good, it was good. And then the creation of human beings, and we think it's very good. He said, God says, it's very good. And we imagine that back then, before Genesis 3 and the unraveling of everything, that everything was perfect. But Genesis 1, the creation, is a beginning. It's good, but it's not the end. God has purposes for the world that need to be fulfilled. So we start with Genesis 1 because Genesis 1 is the foundation for everything. We start with Genesis 1 and not Genesis 2, which we will come to, and still less Genesis 3. So what do we learn from Genesis 1? Number one, women, you are special. You are special. Your identity is that you are an image bearer. There we are on page two in the notes. All human beings are created in the image of God. Look at verse 27 of chapter one. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. And it's both male and female are made in the image of God. It's not a 60-40 split or even a 50-50 split. As if, if you put man and woman together, then you get the image of God. If you're a woman today, you are 100% in the image of God. If you're a man, you're 100% in the image of God. And to be in the image of God has more to do with function than anything else. What it means is this. In Genesis 1... 
The Bible is telling us that if you want to know what God is like, you look at man and woman. The man and the woman are God's representatives tasked with acting as he would if he were here as one of us. So I want you to imagine that you're a sheep and uh, you come in contact with a man or a woman and you ask yourself the question, I, I wonder what God thinks about me. <laughs> well, the man and the woman are to be God too that sheep to the whole of the creation so number one you're an image bearer if you're a woman number two you are unique notice there are these differentiations through genesis 1 light and dark day and night and then and so on and it comes to a climax male and female there is a differentiation i will never experience life as a woman God made human beings male or female. Now let me say that for some people, that sense of my identity, whether I identify as a man or a woman, is a huge, huge issue. And it's important, it's important that we recognize that people struggle with that and it's a real struggle. There's a reference to a book in the reading at the end by Mark Yarhouse. It's on gender dysphoria. I'd encourage you to have a look at that. I, I can't go into that this morning. Despite the fact that it is an issue about being male or female for some people, the Bible is really clear that there is differentiation. Male and female. So God made you a woman. He did not make you a man. And that's a good thing, and you should celebrate. I thank God that I've been made a woman and not a man, if you're a woman. Third thing is that you have a purpose. Notice over on page uh, uh, three. Uh, God blessed them, that is the man and the woman, and said, Be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth, subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, and over every creature that moves upon the ground. The man and the woman together equally are to spread, if you like, God's rule across the entire earth. God has a purpose for this earth. Genesis 1 is the beginning with all the potential. And the man and the woman are tasked with the responsibility to bring about God's purposes for the entire earth. And that means they need to spread. It means they need to exercise dominion, rule, take control, so that God's purposes for his creation will come to completion. And men and women, you share in that. That's what Genesis 1 is saying. So number one, you are special. Number two, you're not a problem. You are the solution. I've been to a number of conferences over the years where the issue of women has come up. And you know sometimes I think it sounds a little bit like this. Men have a problem, it's called sin. Women have a problem, it's called sin, but women also have a problem which is called being a woman. 
Women, you are not a problem. You are the solution. You remember the last point was that men and women together have a task. The question is, how do you relate to that task as a woman rather than a man? Well, let's have a look at that. Let's have a look at the task that's been given. Let's flick over to page four. I'm being so disciplined this morning. We're on time. (laughs) You need to pray it will last. Page four. The task. When we come to chapter two, we have the second creation account. Remember, we need to read chapter two in the light of chapter one. And what we have here with the creation account in chapter 2 is the creation of humans, of the human, of the man, Adam, which can mean just human being, not just a special name. I notice there in verse um, 6, no shrub had yet appeared on the earth and no plant had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth and there was no Adam, no man, to work the ground. And then you get that interesting thing in verse 10 onwards, which talks about a water flowing from Eden and about the gold and the land being good and the bedillium or the aromatic resin and the onyx. What's going on here? Well, you can get it clearly from that first one. There is potential for agriculture. But God needs to do something. That is, he needs to send rain. But... The human needs to do something as well. And when you get to those references about the rivers and about the gold and so on, there is potential in the ground to turn into things, stuff, do something with the resources of the earth. So what you, you see what you've got there? You've got potential. God creates with potential but it's up to the human beings to realize that potential, to make it happen. So there's potential. Notice the setting. God places the man in the garden, so there he has all the resources he needs to be able to fulfill his role. There's all kinds of trees. There's lots of food. It's a safe kind of place. He's got the tree of life in there. Everything that he needs is to be found in the garden. He's given instructions to work it and take care of it. Those terms, work it and take care of it, are both priestly terms. He's to guard it and protect it, a bit like the way the priest later on is to work in the temple and protect it and guard it. This is a sacred space, this garden. God is present there. And in the midst of this garden and from that garden, the man is to fulfill the potential. But danger lurks. There is a dark undercurrent here. That language of, in verse 15, to take care of it is really to guard it. Well, what does it need guarding from? Well, chapter 3 will tell us when we come to it. Serpent. See, Genesis is the beginning of the beginning. It's good. God creates with potential, and the earth is good, but danger lurks. 
and danger for the man as well. As, and the Lord God commanded the man, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. So there we have potential, and then we have a problem. The problem is, the Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. Now what's that about? You know, poor Adam. He goes home at night after working in the garden and, you know, there's nobody to talk to. Doesn't your heart bleed for him? And, and, and there's nobody to cook his meal. And, and there's nobody to share his day with. And there's nobody to bring him the slippers so that he relaxes with his feet up after a stressful day. Oh, he's so lonely. It has nothing to do whatsoever with existential loneliness. It is about incompleteness. This is not primarily about the man. It is about the function of human beings to bring about God's purposes. And that's why God says, I will create a helper. He doesn't say, I'm going to create a companion for you so you can have friendship. It's a helper. Now, what does it mean by a helper? Well, it doesn't mean somebody to do the teas. It doesn't mean somebody who will provide you slippers for you men when you get home. It doesn't mean somebody who's the number two. The person who carries the bags so that you can do the creative stuff. Think of it like this. The beginning of World War II, Churchill, Winston Churchill. Are we, are we all there? Yep. Yeah, just checking. I realize this is Australia, sorry. Winston Churchill went across to the United States to see President Roosevelt. And he said, I'd like your help, Mr. President. What was he doing? Was he coming to somebody and saying, I'd like you to be a number two to me? Absolutely not. He was actually approaching someone who was in a much stronger position than him. By that stage, a more powerful potential ally. And he says, I need your help. Please, will you help? That's how we are to understand helper. In fact, that word helper is often used to talk about God as the helper. So please Never ever think that what's being promised here is a man, a man's helper in the sense of, you know, poor man, he needs somebody who will deal with his loneliness or, you know, he's, he's almost got it, he just needs somebody to do the dirty work so that it can be finished off. That is not what's being talked about here. The issue is incompleteness the fact that the man cannot fulfill the purposes God has for human beings without the helper. Look at the structure of the text, page 5. The problem identified, it's not good for the man to be alone. And so what God does is he brings the animals. Now God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man. And then verses 19 and 10, 20, the man names them. 
He brought them to the man to see what he would name them, and whatever the man called each living creature, that was his name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, all the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. Cue Bob Dylan. God gave... Yeah, anyway. What's that about? Some people say, well, that demonstrates the authority of the man, because he names... Well, yeah, maybe, but remember chapter 1? God gives dominion to both the man and the woman, but in any case, that's not the issue here. The issue is he needs a helper. So think of it like this. God brings a chicken along. It's not called chicken because man hasn't called it chicken yet. So this bird is brought before the man, and God says to the man, Hey, what do you think of this? I thought I did a really good job with this. What do you make of it? You reckon helper? The man says, I think I sense lunchtime. <laughs> it will be called chicken, and I will eat it for lunch. <laughs> so God brings a rhino along, and the man runs up a tree. And God says, what are you doing up there? I, I mean, do you like the rhino? I think this is really impressive. <laughs> And the man says, I call this rhino, and whenever I experience rhino, I climb a tree. <laughs> Do you see what's going on? Well, look at the climax in case you don't get it. The outcome is, but for Adam, no suitable helper was found. Do you see how the text works? There's a need for a helper in the whole of creation. There is nothing that can be this helper. No suitable helper. And so the solution is, I will make a helper suitable for him. Then the Lord God made a woman from the side of the rib. He had taken out of the man and brought her to the man. And there's this exclamation of the man. Because he's never seen anything like this. And there is this recognition. This is it. This is it. Now what's the significance of all this? Significance is huge. Without the creation of the woman, God's purposes for creation that culminate in new creation, new heavens, new earth, will remain completely unfulfilled. Or if I can put it in the common language that we sometimes use, without the arrival of the woman, there's no heaven. I don't want to use the word heaven, but just to get, give you the picture. Without the woman, there's no Jesus. So no salvation. No hope for the future. That's how significant this is. Without the woman, God's purposes for this world will not be brought to completion. But with the woman... They will. Women, you are not the problem. You are the solution. In Genesis 2. You got that? Sorry, I've lost my watch. Please turn over the page. So that's something to do with task, with what we learn about task. What about the relationship between the men and the woman? By the way, 
the text is an interpretation. The text, Genesis 2 and Genesis 1 and Genesis 3, the text is an interpretation. What do I mean by that? I mean that Genesis 2, for example, is not just a description of what happened. It is an interpretation of what happened. It is God's interpretation intended, well, in the first case, for them. And so it comes into a particular context where people have all kinds of ideas about the creation about God, about what it means to be human beings, about what it means to be male and female, about what the destiny of human beings is. It doesn't enter some neutral space. And it's not in the first instance written to us. So to to jump ahead a little bit, Genesis 2 is not in the first instance addressing, when it talks about the relationship between the man and the woman, it is not addressing feminism. Do you know why? Because that's a modern manifestation. So the text is an interpretation. So we have to ask the question, what do we think is going on when the writer says the things that he says? Why does he say them? So what do we do about the relationship between the man and the woman? Well, one way of dealing with it is to minimize the differences. Some people talk as if there is such a thing as human being, humanness. And that's the essential thing. And then, of course, there are male manifestations of that, and that's largely biological, and there are female manifestations of that. But the essential thing is being a human being. Some people want to kind of abolish the differences altogether. But the text won't allow us to do that. Look at the text. Look at how it works. There's a piece of literature. And by the way, it's a piece of literature. And it's an interpretation of what's going on. Notice that the two, the man and the woman, have got different birth certificates. (laughs) Did you notice that? I mean, when they get together, I, I can imagine them sharing birth certificates. I know, I know that's anachronistic, so you know, just, just bear with me. The man says, hey, can I show you my birth certificate? It says, created out of the clay, formed. And the woman says, uh, my birth certificate doesn't say that. It says, I came from you. Whoa! <laughs> What's that about? Well, it's about differentiation, isn't it? It's addressing that issue of whether or not we can collapse the differences. Genesis 2 is saying that difference matters. Well, another way of dealing with it is to say there's something to do with hierarchy here. You know, so the man is to lead and the woman is to follow. And there are lots of reasons given for that. Because the first one is that because the man's made first. And because he's the first, he is the first firstborn, and therefore he is the leader, and the woman is to lead. That's a pretty common view in some circles. Do you notice that there is nothing in the text here 
that links the creation of the man first with leadership. Nothing. It's not there. He doesn't say it. The man first, without the woman, highlights the incompleteness. It's not good for the man to be alone. But it says nothing about leadership. Uh, the other thing is, if you follow the narrative through, notice it moves from aloneness, incompleteness, the recognition of that, the nothing in all creation, to the climax, which is the arrival of woman. You're moving from an incompleteness to a climax, the arrival of the woman. It's not the other way around. It's not about how great man is, the man is, and then the woman kind of, she's got to follow. The text doesn't say that. The woman is the climax of the account. The, the helper thing we've already talked about, the naming I've already talked about, so I'm not going to go over that. The naming of the woman, some people will say, well, look at what it says. Then the man said, she shall be called woman, for she was taken out of the man. So that's a naming. So that's to do with authority. Well, no, it's not. It's a different expression from the one used earlier on. But in any case, what's happening is that finally this creature appears and the man says, wow, this is it. This is amazing. I recognize here the helper. And the woman is taken from the man and for the man. I will make a suitable helper for him. But as I've already said, this is not primarily about the needs of the man. It's about the purposes of God. Creation of the woman in Genesis 2 is actually a climax, the highlight of the creation account in Genesis 2. Some people try to deal with it by talking about dependence. Uh, there are some cultures where there's this idea of, you know, the, the, the female principle is the source of wisdom or the source of life, the, the mother image of giving birth, all that kind of thing. That's very common. Well, the text doesn't allow us to do that either, does it? Because the man's created first and he's given the instructions and the woman is taken afterwards. Do you see what I mean about the text is an interpretation and it's spoken into a culture. It's addressing people who have ideas and it's engaging with them. So what is this about? You know, if you read this ecstatic outburst of the man, this is woman. She's taken from me. The image we ought to have in mind is this. The man sees something incredible. He has never seen in the entire creation anything like this creature that God has brought to him. And he falls in love. He falls in love. Why do I say that? Well, look at how the text goes. The comment of the writer is, that is why a man leaves his father and his mother and is united to his wife, and they become 
one flesh. This is about a relationship of love. It's not about leadership. It's about love. And it's about sacrificial love on the part of the man as well. The man leaves. There's a cost in order to be with this amazing creature called the woman. And then they become one flesh. There is now nothing between them. They're different, male and female. But they're united in this amazing completeness. And there's that summary statement at the end. Adam and his wife were both naked and felt no shame. It's the perfection. I'm going to come back to this. Just want to flag this up. Genesis 2 is about marriage. Doesn't say anything here in Genesis 2 about singleness. There are principles here to do with the relationship between men and women. But notice in Genesis 2 that the climax is marriage. I'm going to come to that. So single people, please don't leave yet. Remember that Genesis is the beginning, it's not the fulfillment. And as we'll see later on, the fulfillment of human relationships, male and female, is not marriage. We'll come to that later. Okay, a few comments about gender roles in the Old Testament. What does the Old Testament tell us about gender roles? There are two factors that are important. There is the givenness in creation. There are some things that are given to us. Certainly in the Old Testament, the only people who could bear children were women. There's difference. That's a givenness. And so the kind of society that you develop comes out of those givennesses. You can't do anything about it. And it will affect how people relate. But there's an awful lot about the relationship between men and women, their roles. Most of that is culture. It's making something of what we have that's given and then we work it out and that's okay. Because remember, man and woman are made in the image of God. They are God's representatives and he says, there's the earth, there are the resources, go and have fun. The Old Testament has some very interesting examples that are worth following up about the role of women in the Old Testament. There's Deborah, who is a leader of God's people, and the people respect her and follow her. She's not making morning tea. Huldah is really, really interesting because Huldah exercises spiritual leadership and authority. Authority. And Song of Songs, Song of Songs, I think is fascinating because one of the things that's going on in Song of Songs, and there's a series on this, so you can get it on the website. You get a progression. You have this woman at the beginning of Song of Songs, this young woman, and there's that sense of fragility, uncertainty. She she's frightened of her own shadow, and by the end, she's been transformed by love. She's been transformed. And the image at the end of Song of Songs is the woman poised, goddess-like, fully in control, in the garden. And the man is asking if he can join her. Isn't that fascinating? There's a progression. 
I would suggest that's a good metaphor for how we are to understand what's going on in Genesis 2. The woman arrives and in that relationship she is to grow and to thrive. Okay, now let's have a look at the unraveling. The world that we live in is one where there is a fracturing of the relationships between men and women. In Genesis 2 and Genesis 3, which is where we come to the fracturing in Genesis 3, that's where we come to it, it's, it's related to, to Adam and Eve. By the way, we need to understand that Adam and Eve are like us because they're human beings, but they're also different from us. Neither of them has a mother. <laughs> Their function is different as well as being the same. So we have to ask the question, how is it being used in the text? Let's turn over. Genesis, well, no, let's have a look at this. The, the, what, I've, what I've called the fracturing of love. Genesis 3, I just quickly remind you of what's going on here. God says you can eat of any tree in the garden, but you mustn't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because the day you do that, well, you will die. Genesis 3, the serpent comes into the garden. You remember, dangers lurk. One of the things that the man has got to do, and the woman presumably is drawn into that, is to protect the garden. Serpent gets in. The woman hears what the serpent says and he says, look, I think God wants to hold some things back from you. That's why he said, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So eat and you will be great. You'll be like God. So she takes from the fruit and she gives it to the man and both of them eat. I want you to notice the outcome of that. In verse 7, so over on page 8, page 7 then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. Does it ring any bells? Where's that kind of imagery come earlier? Well, this is the end of chapter 2, isn't it? Adam and his wife, 2.25, were both naked and they felt no shame. That's the way the writer sums up that complete oneness in the relationship between the husband and the wife. But that's now fractured. So what are the effects on the relationship between the man and the woman of what's going on? It's summed up in verse 16. Your desire to the woman, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Some, those, those words, desire and rule, are difficult words. They, 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 they can mean a number of different things. Some people say that what this means as a result of what's gone on in the garden, in the eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, of disob the disobedience, is that the woman will now have a desire to dominate the man. But the husband will dominate her. At least one English translation of Genesis 3 puts it like that. It seems to me that is far from clear-cut. And certainly, I don't think it's the majority view anyway. I want to suggest there's something much more poignant going on here. What we're seeing here is a distortion in the relationship between the man and the woman 
Notice how it talks about the vulnerability of the woman. Uh, I haven't put it down in the text, but it talks about increasing the pains in childbirth. I'm sorry, I missed that out, but, it, but it's there in the text. You can look at it later. What that emphasizes is the vulnerability of the woman. Childbirth is, is a metaphor, is a reality. It's, it's, it's a really difficult time. If you've had children and women, you, you know you're very vulnerable. And, and it can be life-threatening as well. Now that vulnerability does not begin in Genesis 3. Because the text says, I will increase the pains. So what we've got here is a highlighting of the vulnerability of the woman. And she desires her husband. She wants him to be there for her in her vulnerability. And then he talks about the man ruled the woman. And there's a side of that that could be a good thing, couldn't it? He provides support. He's there for her. He supplies strength for her. But notice in both those terms, desire and rule, there is the potential for something much more destructive. So the rule of the man can become domination. The desire of the woman can be unfulfilled or reflect all kinds of other things. What we're getting here is a depiction of love that's now fragile and fractured. Love will still remain, but it will never be the same again. Never be the same again. Those of you who are married, you know that, don't you? Don't you? You've had some great days, haven't you? Maybe your wedding day was <laughs> the greatest day. When you were in love and Life was wonderful and it was amazing and you couldn't believe how fortunate you were to have found this other. And then there are other times where you want to leave, where you want to walk out, where you feel crushed by the relationship. See, here where we talk about this fracturing, it's not that everything goes it's just that it will never be the same again. And it's the fracturing of love. And love is what lies at the heart of everything. Which brings me to the last part. The coming of love on page 8. The coming of love. The arrival of Jesus Christ, the gospel... The arrival of Jesus Christ is the arrival of love. You can describe it in all kinds of ways, but God is love, and this is about the coming of love. And love transforms everything. You remember at the heart of Genesis 2 is love, but it's love expressed in a marriage relationship. But the kind of love that God has for us and wants us to experience goes way, way beyond marriage. And the coming of Jesus is about the coming of love. The creation was created out of love and for love. God didn't have to create the world. Why did he? Because it was an act of love. And it's created for love that human beings and indeed the whole creation will experience the transforming, transcendent love 
of God. And the coming of Jesus is about the coming of love. And it's more than the restoration of love. It is taking it to a whole new level. And that changes everything. Let me just mention two things that it changes. Two examples we get from the gospel. First of all, it completely changes singleness. In the Old Testament, there is really no conception of being single. Because, well, in Genesis 2, it's because of increasing, multiplying. When you get to Abraham in Genesis 12, it's about, again, being fruitful and multiply. It's about, I will make a great nation of you. And, but, but it's also linked to a promise that one day, one day God's purposes for His creation will come to fulfillment through the children. And that's why it was so important for every Israelite, if they possibly could, to get married and have children. That's why it was a great shame in the Old Testament if you couldn't have children. But with the coming of Jesus, everything changes because He is the fulfillment of that. The child has come. And that means it's no longer about having children. In fact, marriage isn't going to survive. We are children of the resurrection. The destiny of human beings is not marriage. In fact, the destiny of marriage is the relationship between Christ and His church. The highest thing that you can achieve is not getting married and having children. Singleness in the New Testament is elevated to at least the same level as marriage. I think the Apostle Paul comes very close to saying it's even more valuable because to be single means you're a witness of the resurrection where there will be no more marriage because the promise has come and the way that the kingdom grows is not through having children. If you have children, you know, we want them to grow up to know and love the Lord, but it's about people coming into the kingdom. I, I talked about that some years ago. and You can find it on YouTube, and there are some notes about that on page 10, and there is a reference to it. You can follow it up in the resources at the end. Let me take one other example. It's to do with women. Don't worry, I've almost finished. Um, two examples of how the, the gospel, the coming of Jesus highlights, changes, transforms the place of women. One is in Luke 10, and it's the story of Mary and Martha, and presumably they were a reasonably well-off household, and Martha, it was her house, and it seems. Uh, and so Jesus is teaching his disciples. He's doing what a rabbi, what a teacher would do. He would get his followers around him, and they're sitting at his feet, and they're learning from the master. They are being trained to be rabbis. Meanwhile, Martha is overseeing the preparations in the kitchen. And she notices that her sister Mary is where the men are with Jesus. And so she goes to Jesus and she says, Speak to my sister. What's the issue? Well, it might be partly to do with the fact that there were a lot of people there and it was a small kitchen and, you know, she needed some help. That's not the main reason, though. 
The main issue is that Mary should not have been there sitting at the feet of Jesus as far as Martha was concerned. She's where the men are. And I want you to notice how Jesus responds to this. At the end of that quotation on page 8 is from Luke 10. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you're worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, and indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. It's not just okay for Mary to be there. I welcome her there. That's a complete transformation. The other example is the resurrection. Women in the resurrection. The women are the first witnesses and messengers of the resurrection of Jesus. It is very interesting, it seems to me. I wouldn't want to make a huge amount of this, but I think there's something in this. At the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he chooses 12 men. 12 men, 12 tribes of Israel. There's an echo kind of there, but 12 men, the beginning. When you get to the climax of the narrative of Jesus, which is the resurrection... Who are the witnesses of the resurrection? They are women. One example in particular, Mary Magdalene, over on page 9. She encounters the risen Jesus. Notice what Jesus says. Jesus said, go to my brothers and tell them. He commissions her to take the message of the resurrection to the men. Let me pull all this together. We live with a tension. Two aspects of that tension are we live in this creation, not the new creation. In the new creation, there's going to be no marriage. We live in this creation, the givenness of this creation. But... Jesus has broken in. The new age has begun. So here's the question. How does the coming of the age of Jesus, how does the arrival of the future impact on something like marriage, which is something that's given in creation, but is one day going to pass? Are you with me? The other thing is that we live in a cultural moment. So the way that the culture operates in 2018 is different from how it operated in 1918 and is very different from how it operated in A.D. 28. How does the gospel speak to culture? And that, I take it, is what people like Paul are grappling with. We live in the now of the creation, the new creation has dawned, but the not yet of the fulfillment. So there's still marriage, for example. How, do, how does the gospel address that? How are we to live that out? How are we, as the writer to the Hebrews says, to fulfill the command to honor marriage, but bearing in mind that the gospel has come? And how are we to do that in our culture? That, I take it, is the tension that Paul is addressing in things like 1 Corinthians 11 and 1 Timothy 2. I'm done. Let's pray. Thanks.
Next week, we're going to look at 1 Timothy 2. Our Father, we thank you that you are our creator and our God. And we thank you for your word. And we thank you that your word is designed to give light to us. And Father, we ask that you will help us to live in the light of your light. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.